Well, Pastor, I appreciate the opportunity to preach. You said a lot of nice things. I don't know if any of that's true, true but I appreciate it. Uh, hey, amen. Oh, well. 20 bucks. Do you think that was worth $20, everyone? Okay, great. Fantastic. If you would, turn your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, Pastor had done a devotion for our school on Monday, and uh, it was a really great challenge. And when he had asked me to preach, it was something I, I just ended up diving into this week. And um, this, I'm not trying to steal his thing, but I did piggyback a little bit off that devotion this, this last week. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, let me ask you this question. Have you ever planned something before? Never, ever just planned something? How many of you guys like planning? Enjoy planning. Raise your hands. Fantastic. Okay. How many of you guys do not like planning? Okay. It's, it's true. Women are naturally better at planning than men. Amen? Anybody? Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Women are naturally better at planning. I do like planning. I love when a good plan, not a bad plan, but a good plan comes together. Right? Now, have you guys ever heard of a place called Olive Garden before? It's a beautiful place. Um, and when you are there, it's kind of like your family, I feel. Um, I don't know if it's the logo or the, you know, the, just the you know, term of the, the place. But when you're there, you're family. And I, I don't, I don't know if you know this, I love Olive Garden. If you ask what I want for Christmas or my birthday or just because, if you slip me a good old Olive Garden gift card, you will just see a smirk of happiness, of joy over flooding my face and my, my everything. I just love Olive Garden. Now, there is a soup that I believe was at the Last Supper. It's the chicken and gnocchi soup. Have you guys heard of, heard of that before? It's good soup, good soup. And I loved it so much that I was just going through the Internet and looking to see how I could make it. Now, after a lot of trial and error, I mean, time, time after time after time, I finally got to a recipe that my wife, yes, my wife said was delicious. And so, I would make it all the time. It was just, it was good. But then, she was bragging to my friends about it. Oh, you got to try this. This is better than Olive Garden. And I, I would beg to differ because I just love Olive Garden. But she kept telling people. And so, we had some friends come over to our house one day. And my job was to make this soup. Now, a logical person would plan and say, you know what, I need to get this ingredient and this ingredient and this ingredient. And there's a special ingredient that you have to have after trial and error that I'm not going to say lest you steal my recipe, okay? But there's a secret ingredient. I had forgotten the secret ingredient. So, I go to the store and they don't have it. So I make do with the next best thing. Have you ever heard of spinach dip before? Okay, have you ever had that in soup before? Probably not. All right, well, I, I, I tried it. So I get this spinach dip, and I don't even think it was the real dip. Because you know, you know how you have dip in a can? It's not really real dip. It's just like, kind of like cat food. Put that dip in the soup, stirring it, stirring it, getting all the other ingredients, putting in, putting gnocchi in, and I'm just, I'm ready to go, right? And I probably should have tasted it. Probably should have tested it. Didn't do that. It was nice boiling. Everything, everything else that was in it should have been in it. And so now we're at the dinner table. We lay it before them. We give them the soup and give them their portions. And they take their first bite. And you know how Christians are. Even if it's terrible and the worst thing in the world, they will smile at you and say, thank you so much for the food that you provided for us. I could see 
them holding back a grim, just, just disgust. My wife, on the other hand, she tasted it and she just went, Ugh, what in the world is that? And then I tasted it and quickly ordered pizza, right? Because that's what you do. But the plan had not come together. Tonight, we are going to look at a passage, a passage of admonition from the Lord for something that we all face. Now, I want to premise this. I face this as well. I struggle with this as well. And when you're preaching a subject about this, it is very hard to not self-examine yourself and say, God, please help me to live by your word. And so I'm saying this. This is something that we all struggle with, and this is something that we will all struggle with for all of our lives. But God wants us to see from this passage that he desires for us to be unified. Look with me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says this, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, and any comfort of love, and if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for you. We're thankful, Lord, that you love us enough to give us admonition, and you exhort us, Lord. You, you edify us, and you tell us exactly what you desire for us to have. And so I pray, Lord, as a church, as a body of Christ, that we would fulfill our purpose for you, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In 60 AD, Paul is found beaten and now thrown into a Roman imprisonment. For two years, he's going to stay in this place. But it is here that Paul it was moved by the Holy Spirit to write to the first church that he had planted in Europe, Philippi. Now, Paul thinks back to the many years of service that he had to the Lord. He thinks back to those people there at Philippi that he met and was able to lead to Christ. He thinks back of the many prayers and the joys that they shared. And yes, he thought back to the many battles that they faced. And it is now these words that the Holy Spirit penned that God wants us to get a hold of tonight. Look with me again at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, If therefore, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and, and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now let's make sure that we understand exactly what Paul is saying here. Because the language that he is using is very important. Now, do you see the little the English word in chapter uh, the verse first verse if you see that it's the very first word in the in the verse okay if now the Greek translation of that word actually appears four times in this one verse and this word is meant to give an assumption now when, when we were learning about this we would use the word since since this is true this is what it means right and so the assumption is being made Paul is assuming that these things are presence within the congregation. So he is saying, I am assuming there is consolation, there is encouragement in Christ. I I'm assuming you have comfort from love. I I'm assuming you have fellowship in the Spirit. I'm assuming you have affection and sympathy. You have all these things. And because you have all these amazing, amazing things, you have what it takes. You are capable of doing what I'm asking you to do, but there's one thing, church, there's one thing that you lack. And I can imagine as they are reading this letter, the reader's ears are perking up because they are thinking, what is it? What is it that we lack? He, and he says, my joy, is, it's not full yet, but you can fulfill my joy. And they're probably thinking, what can we do? And he says it. 
you have to be like-minded. Having the same love, being of one accord, and he says it again, of one mind. In other words, there is one thing you lack, church, but there is one thing that you can fill complete and make perfect my joy and the joy of the Lord, that you would be unified. Unified in terms of how we think and how we act. And if you're taking notes tonight, I want you to see this. This is the main point. This is it. We need to have unity of thought and of action. Unity in the church is so very important. Now, how important? Well, it was, it was Jesus who in the Garden of Eden, right before he's about to be crucified, that he calls out to his Father. Now, I can imagine anybody could ask anything. Right? If you know that you're about to die, that you were about to be beating, beaten, there are a million things probably going through your mind, right? But the thing that is going through God's mind, Jesus' mind, is us. John chapter 17, verse 20, says this. Neither pray I for these alone. He's speaking of his disciples, the people that are following after him. I'm not just praying for the ones that you gave me just now, but for them which shall believe on me through their words, that they may have all be of one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the word may believe that thou hast sent me, and that the glory which thou hast given me, I have given, un, given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jesus is praying. Out of all the things in the world he could be praying for, he is praying for us. He is praying for the congregation of Central Baptist Church here in Ocala, Florida. He is praying for all future believers. And he's asking that they would be one. In what way? That the same way that, Father, you and I are one. The same way that you are in me, Father, and I'm in you. I want them to be just like that. And the example of unity that Jesus gives is for us to be unified the same way that he is with the Father. There couldn't be a greater unity. There couldn't be a greater oneness. The unity that I have with my Father is the unity that I want for my body of believers. That those that would follow after me, that they would have that unity. Why? Well, he tells us exactly why. That the world would know that you had sent me. Amen. Our unity sends the most powerful message that the world, that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. Look at his believers. Look at the unity of all those who come from different backgrounds and cultures and creeds. There, there is a testament to the power of the truth of the gospel because everyone that is, accepts the name of Jesus Christ is now part of the body of Christ. And in the body of Christ, you don't see diversity. You see unity. You know, the New Testament tells us of the very first time that Christians were called Christians. And it was used to apply to Jesus' followers in the city of Antioch, right? We, we know of that, right? And Antioch was one of the most diverse cities of its time. And the verse here actually names a number of names of people, and it tells us of the different lives and the different backgrounds and, and the different ec ec economic groups and, and where they're coming from. And there was no word to describe what the people were seeing in this group. And if you thought, okay, that prejudice and racism is bad in our time, it was extreme. It was worse. It was everywhere in the first century. And yet, there are people from all walks of life, all na different nationalities, 
all together in the unity. And these were people on the outside looking at and saying, what is that? How is it possible? What is happening? It, it, this doesn't just happen where people from every type of nation and tongue and, and, and culture comes together and they're unified. What is it? And they didn't know what to call it. And so they called it Christian. The only way to describe what they had come to see, what had brought them together in the unity that they have seen was Jesus Christ. Like Christ, little Christ. That is why our unity is so important. Have you ever wondered why uh, Christianity took off and spread like wildfire the way it did? Well, a movement that started with 12 men and a savior, then 300 years later would become the national religion of the entire Roman Empire, spread like wildfire, and now 2,000 years later, we are still meeting weekly, daily, looking at this. Well, how does that happen? Number one, they saw the resurrected Christ, right? Jesus said, I'm going to rise again. I'm going to be raised up again. And then the disciples, they were freaking out when he was crucified, right? They were hiding. But once they saw Jesus' body, his resurrected self, they were empowered. They were emboldened to do what they were called to do. But the second thing is that the church was unified. The local church was unified. And a perfect picture of this was Acts chapter 2. Peter was preaching a powerful message, and what happened was once the people received God's word, they came together in fellowship and in breaking of bread, and they began praying together, and they began coming together, but it didn't stop there. When they were Christians in the congregation that were suffering need, that they were being persecuted, that they were in need of help, what did their brothers and sisters do? They sold, sold of their own belongings to supply for their brothers' and sisters' needs. They're not thinking of themselves, but the, they're thinking on the needs of the other members of the body of Christ who are hurting. And that's because, because of this, because of their action, the world took notice and said, how is this possible? How is it possible that somebody would sell of their own stuff, of their own household, of all their belongings, and give it now to somebody else that they just met a month ago? Two months ago, a week ago? How is that possible? Only God. Only God. And because of this, many were added in the midst of them daily. More and more were added because everyone who saw what was going on wanted to be part of something where others were put first above themselves. So the question is, how do we get to this place that God desires for us? How do we fulfill the purpose the plan that God has for us. How do we get as unified as the Father is with the Son and His body of believers? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 2 of Philippians, verse number 3. Look there with me, if you would. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. What Paul is saying here is very simple, but it's profound. I want you to get this. Unity only comes through humility. I'll say it again. Unity only comes through humility. If we want to be unified, we must not bicker and seek everything for ourselves, but rather put 
others first. And in case you don't understand how serious he is about this, he says it again just a few verses later. Look with me at verse 14. Actually, let's go back a little bit. He says in verse um, 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation in fe with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputing, that you may be blameless, harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in this dark world. He's saying, listen, you have obeyed me. You, you've, been, you've been listening. You've always done what I've told you to do, whether I'm there or whether I'm not there. I'm telling you, this is what I want you to do. You need to work this out together. The disputing, the murmuring, it needs to go. The selfishness, the, the, the pride, the, the constant thinking of yourself, it has to be put away from you. See, the poison is to our unity. What cripples what God desires for His church to be is our own selfishness and pride. And nothing will destroy ministry faster. Listen, it won't be the attacks without. It, it, you know how I know that? Because the first century church, they were literally dragged from their homes and taken to Colosseums. They were murdered. They were martyred for the sake of Christ. And you know what happened? The church grew. It's, it's not going to be attacked with, from without. It's not going to be legislation. It's not going to be the Senate, the House. The, it's not going to be the presidency. It's not going to be any of those things. If we are going to fall as a church, it's going to happen from within. And so... I ask you this, have you seen that happen before? Have you seen how selfishness and pride, how angriness, negativity has changed your view and poisoned you? Have you seen it? Maybe your view of an employer or a person has changed because of complaints or a negative spirit of another person. Things like being said, I don't know why they're doing that. If I was in charge, I would. Do you see what they are doing with their child? I would never. I told them that they should, but they never listened to me. I, I, I've, I've been trying to give them, I've been trying to tell them this. You see, church, gossip and bite, backbiting should never be named among us. Complaining and ungratefulness should be the farthest from our minds. Divisiveness and fractions should be the thing that we despise the most, and we should keep ourselves from that. We should halt every attempt to divide this church. You see, when pride sits in, we, all of us, are capable of believing or saying anything. Now, because pride skews our thoughts, it skews our judgments, and it skews every aspect of us. I found this in an old newspaper that I was searching on the Internet from the 1990s. And I just want to read it to you it's because it's about perspective. When the other person acts that way, he's ugly. When you do it, it's nerves. When he's, he's set in his ways, he's obstinate. When you are, it's just firmness. When they don't like your method, they're micromanaging. But when you don't like the way they're doing things, you're showing good judgment. When he tries to be accommodating, he's brown-nosing. But when you do it, you're using tact. When he takes time to do things, he's dead slow. But when you take ages, you are deliberate. You know why? Because the same things that we see or expect people to have grace with us and be long-suffering with us, we don't have the same long-suffering with other people. How, how can we expect people to be kind and long-suffering and gentle and, and meek and forgiving of us if we don't show the same kindness to others? 
And that is because our focus is no longer on those people that we get to serve, but rather it's on getting served. Our purpose is to submit ourselves one to another and put others first. And this is seen in our responses and our relationships, right? How many of you guys have ever had a relationship at marriage where you have won the argument by standing your ground and being proud and saying, I'm not going to apologize for that? Has, has that ever worked for anybody at all? Have you ever just been able to say, you know what, I'm going to win this thing in my pride and my justification because I know I'm right? Or how many, how many of you have been able to reach somebody through your own desires, right? I, 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 it's going to be this way or it's not going to work at all, right? Has that ever worked for anybody? No. Because our pride can never satisfy somebody else. It is only through humility. It is only through working together. Pride is the, the opposite of what we need to have as a foundation in this church. And it is seen so many times throughout Scripture. That's why Jesus tells us, turn the other cheek. When you offend somebody, go to them. When somebody offends you, go to them. Be kind. If somebody asks you to, to walk a mile, go with them two miles. It is always about us giving more, going extra, doing the hard things, as Christ has done the hard things. Pride can show itself in three ways. And so these are some just some questions that we can ask ourselves. Number one, do you often compare yourselves to others? See, pride is the encouragement to make ourselves look better. And in doing so, we pick people that are less or we feel less than we are, right? People may be less successful, maybe less affluent, maybe they're not as intelligent as we are, we think so. Maybe they don't have the family we have, or maybe they're less attractive. But if we find ourselves caught in this comparison, it stems and only comes from pride. Number two, do you find yourself criticizing others? Criticism comes as a result of our own securities. Very often, the thing that we criticize the most in others is the thing that we hate about ourselves. And three, do you reject instruction? Church, none of us have arrived in a place in Christianity where we can say, we have attained. We're all growing. We never truly come to a place where we have received everything until we are conforming to the image of God in that righteous body that God has prepared for us. But when we feel that we are never wrong and that we can't be instructed, we are deceiving ourselves. Even Paul said, the things that I want to do, I can't do. The things that I don't want to do, I end up doing anyways. And I'm the chief among sinners. And Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, the one who's preaching and teaching this church right now, he's saying, I haven't arrived yet. And so we need to be Walking, and we need to be taking care because the only cure of, to any of these aspects of pride is having the mind of Christ. Amen. Instead of comparing ourselves to others, compare yourself to His goodness, His kindness, His forgiveness, and that will give you the perspective you need. Instead of criticizing others, encourage them, admonish them, build them up, work together, and always view yourself in light of the gospel. This passage goes on to lay one final nail in the argument for unity. If there was any person that we would feel deserves all praise and admonition, that we would all say, you know what? All praise and glory goes to Christ, right? Exactly. I would hope you would say that. That, that was a little bit more of a letdown. Let's try that again. 
All praise and glory goes to... Okay, Mr. Sheffield, you get a gold sticker at the end of that. That was good. Okay, right? Because our God was the one who created all things. He, because of Him, all things consist. And He has the power and dominion over all things. He is our God. But yet, in verse 5, chapter 2, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being found in, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him the name above, a, a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow and things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Church, there is one who deserves all things. Our God, who is holy and perfect and has no fault in himself, knowing everything about us, knowing that he created this creation, and yet the creature that he created disobeyed him and followed and failed. And time after time throughout history, it continued to disobey him and, and slander his name and blaspheme his name and, and mock the creation that he created. But yet, despite all those things, he looked at us and talked not, no thought of himself. Now listen, God could have and honestly maybe should have just wiped this all clean and started over. He could have and he would have been righteous and holy to do so. But yet... He humbled himself. He looked at you. He looked at me. He saw our need. And he became in the form of a servant. Did he come as a ruler? Did he come as a master? Did he come as a king? No, he came as a servant. And then he went to the cross. How then can we gossip, complain, Dispute, backbite against other people. When our God, who has received every single ounce of disrespect and mockery and blaspheme, despite it all, chose to love us anyways, and is gracious and loving and forgiving, how? How can we as a church do that? How can we stand before God? and justify it's okay to do this because they did that? The answer is we can't. Because church, it's not about us. It's, the, it's about the one who saved us. It's not about us. It's about the ones that he chose to save, the ones that he died for. It's about them. It's about other people. When we put others before ourselves, we become united under the gospel of Christ and we fulfill the purpose of the church. That when people see us, they don't see us as individuals anymore. They see what unites us and that is Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, have you struggled with this before? I know I have, I'm just being honest. I struggle with this and I think if we're all honest, we would all say, testify, I struggle with it. You know why? I don't think God would have said it so many times if he thought it was going to be easy for us. 
throughout Scripture, you're going to see so many times where he's saying, put the other person first, the, first, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He says it over and over and over again, and time and time and time again, because he knows that we're weak and we're feeble and we need help. So church, let me ask you, do we want to be unified? Do we want to be the light that this community needs to see? Do we want to, be, to have the power of God behind us that we can reach this nation? Because we can. All we have to do is do what the first century church did. They were unified under the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they were unified as a body of believers. And we can have the same power tonight. All we have to do is humble ourselves, get ourselves right, and work together for the purpose of glorifying God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around.